Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth of PaleoParents.com. You might also know me as the broth lady or the inventor of the hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian. I'm the co-author of several paleo cookbooks, including Eat Like a Dinosaur, Beyond Bacon, Real Life Paleo. I like to talk about health at any size and self-love and personal acceptance. Specifically, I have a love for lifting heavy things. If you're interested in finding more out about that, you can also find me on Strong Woman Radio. And I'm Dr. Sarah Valentine of thepaleomom.com. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach and The Paleo Approach Cookbook. I'm passionate about nutrient density and the intersection of diet and lifestyle with health, which really means I just love talking about science. News and views, where Sarah and I catch up and you get to listen to our gossip. Stacy, I have been cooking out of the healing kitchen this week. I saw that. Are you enjoying it? I am. This is so. This is like a thing because, as you know, um, I don't usually review cookbooks, but we're doing this weekly meal plan thing for the first time ever. We started a few weeks ago, and um, it has allowed me to basically choose a week's worth of food from a cookbook. And then it's like, inherently, there's a review and it's like, not just a recipe or two, like we're eating. It's an entire week's worth of, yep. like you hope the book's good after a week. Because yeah, exactly. You um, know, after a week, the book was either amazing or really not. <laughs> and there's like nothing in between too, right? Like if you're underwhelmed with a few recipes, by the end of the week, it just turns into like, yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> but if you love every recipe, by the end of the week, you're like, I want to cook more from that book. Well, it came at a really, really great time for me because as we talked about, I'm trying to get closer to AIP. Um, I'm just, I just can't mentally not eat out for, you know, 30 to 90 days or give up all seed spices, which I know really don't bother my body that much. But I'm um, working hard to stay close to AIP. So having the Healing Kitchen come was good kind of inspirational kickoff to kind of jumpstart me back into, hey, you can live without butter and nuts <laughs> for a little <laughs> while. Um, and still eat tasty things. Definitely. So I am, uh, we are, as of today's recording, we are only two days through, but by the po- time the podcast goes live, I'll be at the end of the week. Um, and so far, so good. We made um, We made a salmon dish yesterday, which um, reminded me a lot of this smoked salmon that they have at Union Market, which I don't think I ever took you to when you were here, but they basically do caramelized onions, and I'm pretty sure they put sugar on it because the caramelized onions are really sweet, and then they like smoke the salmon for a really long time with those onions on it, and it becomes insanely delicious, and the salmon in your book was yours, Danilana's, um was Bates, uh, uh, Bates. <laughs> That's what we should call it. Dates and bacon. Um, <laughs> dates and bacon should be Bates, Bates from now on. That's it. 
And um, it, did you get that kind of smoky? It did. It had the smoky and the sweet flavor, and I was like, "Wow, it's like an easy make at home." You know, you don't have to pay forty dollars a pound <laughs> for a tiny piece of smoked um, salmon at the Easter at the Union Market kind of thing. So, and we had my mom and my mom's boyfriend over for dinner, and they had seconds. So clearly, even for non paleo people, it went well. And then tonight we had caramelized onion and herb meatloaf with roasted root veggies in a garlic sauce. Okay, let me just tell you that for someone that has become accustomed to eating butter, for that to be the garlic sauce to be on those vegetables and me to be like, wait, you weren't supposed to put butter in this. Did you follow the recipe? (laughs) That's like, there's no butter in this. (laughs) So you guys did a great job. You totally fooled me. Um, But those, those caramelized onions on top of a meatloaf, we've been putting bacon on top of the meatloaf to replicate kind of a sweet flavor that I'm used to. I grew up having ketchup on meatloaf. And so it was really good um, alternative to bacon on top of the meatloaf. I really liked the onions on it and it gave that kind of sweet flavor that um, I enjoy. such a huge fan of like caramelized onion and red meat combo. Like it's... I'm just, I mean, I could eat caramelized onions in a bowl. Like it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm down. So anyway, so it's really good, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the week. We're going to make taco bowls, which the kids are excited about, and we're going to make um, – uh, I can't – I, for, see, I can't, see the barbecued pulled pork on your – Yeah, I can't remember what you called it when you put it on top of the tostones. Like, that's its own recipe, but yes. So we're going to make the barbecue pulled pork um, and the tostones with avocado, so – I'm excited to find out what you think about it. Yeah, it's been actually really fun. So review copies clearly went out this week and I've just been watching people's initial reactions and I sort of like I third book, right? So um, I have an idea of what to expect and I have, I feel like I'm more tapped into the autoimmune community now than when I did the paleo approach. Like the paleo approach was sort of like my, my entry into creating resources for this community. And in many ways, The Paleo Approach was such a unique book, right? Because nobody had gone into that detailed science with any like health-related topic in a book for the general public before, and certainly not for autoimmune disease. And then, you know, it was like, it was this very different thing. And it was my first book and I just didn't know what to expect. So with this book, like, I'm really proud of how it looks. I think it's beautiful. I think the recipes are amazing. I think the intro material is like a super like, icing on the cake resource. I think the meal plans are fantastic, but it's really neat for me to see that sentiment now coming out from the community and, you know, people who are not getting paid to say nice things about it, which you are not either. In fact, the only person getting paid to say nice things about the book is me and Elena, I think. Um, and you know, we have built in bias, um, but, but to just see the, the excitement and, um, people loving the look and feel of the book and loving starting to cook out of the book and loving the recipes. Like it's just, you know, the feeling it's ah, right. It's that relief and satisfaction. And, um, there's this, this sort of release of anxiety, right? Like, 
okay, okay, it's going to be good. I didn't just pour all of that energy into a project to have people hate it because that's always like the little devil's advocate voice in the back of my head. So it's, it's been really enjoyable. And if you were listening to this podcast and you're like, but I want a copy of The Healing Kitchen. Well, it's going to be in bookstores on Tuesday. So depending on when you listen, you might not have to wait very long. You might not have to wait at all. Um, and if you order it on Amazon right now, Amazon's the cheapest price. And if you have a Prime membership, it'll be delivered to your house on Tuesday, which is really cool. If you don't have a Prime membership, I think it ships on Tuesday. Again, bonus of Prime membership. Not that I'm totally plugging Amazon right there, which I really was. I just <laughs> for, for like I shop on just, Amazon for everything. I like. know it's I um. So my neighbors were like, Sarah, what do you what do you buy all the time? <laughs> do you get boxes like four times a week at your front door? I was like, you know, just everything. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much everything I can find it cheaper online it takes me less time I don't have to hop in the car and you know use gas to get somewhere and then it comes to my door it's also even when I look at like you know discount stores locally and all that kind of stuff I still can't usually find things as as inexpensively as on Amazon and then I've wasted all that time looking so I'm always just like it's cool. If it's on Amazon, that's usually where we're going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so our review, <clears throat> I'm using review with quotation marks, our recap of our weekly meal plan um, and all the recipes that we've tried will be on the blog Wednesday for our new What We Ate Wednesday series. So if you're looking for ideas on, you know, meals to make with your family and how to plan and all that kind of stuff, we're putting those up for free. Um we use a variety of resources, including cookbooks and blogs. So if you don't have those, obviously, it'll be more difficult to follow along. But for this week, it'll only be out of the Healing Kitchen. So you can get it on paper or on ebook immediately mm-hmm. via Amazon. Actually, already available for pre-order on Kindle, which I'm like super impressed with. Yeah. Usually they come out a few days after. Yeah. And it's you can pre-order it on Kindle, which means it gets automatically delivered to your device on Tuesday, which is also cool. Uh, so what we ate Wednesday is that like hashtag WWAW. Well, wow. Have you thought about that? Yeah. Because yeah, that's a thing. I think I hashtag that. That's pretty awesome. We're, just, we're, for some reason, the alliteration just it tickles me. Yeah. We used to do guest posts on Wednesday and I'm like so obsessed with alliterations that I had to actually move four months worth of pre-booked guest posts to, to Thursdays so that I could have the Wednesdays to do what we ate Wednesday because I'm a winner like that. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's an English major for you. <laughs> so, um, okay. What are we talking about today? What's going well, on? Well, you happening? know, it's tis the holiday season. And um, there's certain questions that we get frequently sort of every year. And there's certain challenges that we all face, right? You know, there's holiday parties, there's holiday travel, there is more meals out, more meals at people's houses, um, and more sort of opportunity for falling off the wagon. I mean, you know, what, what, you know, crossing a line that you know is not a good line to cross for your body. That's what I mean by that. Um, 
accidentally being exposed to something that you would never choose to eat. Um, and then the opportunity for really awkward conversations. And I think that that was something I was kind of hoping that we would address in the questions today. They aren't specifically related to the holiday times, um, but they are situations where parents are sort of faced to explaining our chosen diet um, to somebody who's looking after our kids, and how do we how do we engage in that conversation um, in a way that's going to be productive and respectful, but also effective? And how do we um, how do we, especially with young kids, where you're not your your child is maybe a little bit too young to really empower with choice at that point? How do you protect them um, by making sure that they are only getting um, foods that meet, you know, our, our guidelines and whatever those guidelines are. I mean, it may be strict paleo, um, but it may be that out of the house, you know, gluten-free is your line that you won't cross. I know for my kids, my oldest is gluten-free and food dye free and my youngest is gluten-free and dairy free. Um, and so funnily enough, my oldest seems fine with dairy. My youngest doesn't turn into the Hulk with food dyes, which is my criteria. Um, so it's not part of her normal, her normal diet by any means, but once in a while, I don't worry about it. Whereas with my oldest, I worry about it every single time. So, um, so we're going to actually talk about, you know, really how do we, um, how do we protect our food choices on our kids' behalf when our kids aren't with us? Um, and we're hoping, or at least I think that this will be an interesting discussion with some relevance leading into the holidays because of the types of events that we tend to go to where we end up having these same types of conversations potentially over and over and over again. I don't know. Do you still have that when you go out, you know, for the holidays, you still have the, and we don't eat this and no, we don't eat that either. No, toast is still made with bread. That type of conversation. (laughs) Fortunately, I, I don't. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to talking about it some uh, from the perspective of being on the other side of it. I know we have talked um, about this kind of early on in the podcast, and I'm sure Monica will put a link in the show notes to um, an earlier show where we kind of described this. And, you know, I'll kind of recap those sentiments. But fortunately for being, you know, five years on the other side of it, A, the kids are less intolerant to a lot of things. So their restriction list um, has shortened, but also, you know, after that long being exposed to so many situations, both they know how to handle it as well as the people in our lives are aware of it already. So it, it becomes less and less of a concern, but certainly with Wesley entering kindergarten this year and, you know, when they go to friends' houses for play dates, it's it's a lot about kind of education and preparation to get, you know, your whole village involved to make sure yeah. that accidents don't happen, so to speak. I know um, Cole and Finn are really, really good at understanding the like nitty gritty details of food <laughs> and, you know, what is going to have what hidden ingredients in it. But how, how does Wesley do with that? Does he actually recognize no he has no clue he's he's adorable that little wesley um was babied for a really long time so when finn went into kindergarten i feel like finn had a lot more awareness than wes does as being a kindergartner um wesley has started just asking if everything has gluten like he doesn't know 
what gluten is other than he doesn't want to eat it. And so he'll ask, "Does is this gluten-free to like things that are naturally gluten-free? But if he's outside of his home, it's how he's learned to kind of arm himself, you know, and just like ask, is everything gluten-free? Um, but he has, he, he, he is not yet there in terms of our being able to help him understand what gluten is and where it could be hiding and and all that kind of stuff. No. Yeah. So my, my youngest is very similar and she will, she will go up and say, do you have anything without gluten or dairy? Because I can't have those. Um, well, she say glutenin. She doesn't say gluten. She says glutenin. Do you have anything without glutenin or dairy? <laughs> um, but, uh, but at the same time, there's, she's got a pretty good repertoire of like, you know, I know I can't eat this or this or this, but if there's a food that she only knows as a my version of, she doesn't necessarily make the link. So before Thanksgiving, her teacher brought a pumpkin pie into the class, like a regular run of the mill, evaporated, you know, milk, uh, custard, pumpkin pie. And my daughter stuck her finger in that pie and had her finger in her mouth before anybody, you know, you could just see the teachers going across the room, the cry of denial and slow motion. Um, Unfortunately, the reaction she had was super, super mild. But um, it was the sort of classic moment of, you know, A, she's a bit of a brat sticking her fingers in the pie um, because that's not acceptable behavior. But B, like she just, you know, she's had pumpkin pie before at home. And it just didn't occur to her that pumpkin pie fit in the same category as, you know, bread or goldfish crackers or these things that she sees on a more day-to-day basis as the wheat version of and knows that she can't have those. Yeah, Wesley's the same way. He's not really able to decipher the difference between what things we have at home that are special, that are gluten-free, and like that they are a replication of something that does have gluten in the so-called real world. And so that that's why we kind of had to have a conversation with him. Like, how about the thing to do is just always ask, is it gluten-free before you eat it? And then you'll know and it'll be safe. And, you know, you, you won't have to be confused or worried about it. So that's why it's hysterical that, like, for example, we had Thanksgiving lunch at his school. And it was like... um He's talking to the lunch lady because he's ordering his lunch for the first time ever in school, which in and of itself was the most adorable thing. He's literally jumping up and down with like a tray full of food with excitement. And he's like telling the lunch lady that it's the first time buying lunch and how excited he is. And then in between all of these squeals of joy, it's like, are the carrots gluten free? Are the mashed potatoes gluten free? Is the meat gluten free? Mommy, mommy, the meat's gluten free. The carrots are gluten free. We could eat the potatoes. Like, okay, baby. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that's... I'm really impressed that the school has a gluten-free menu options. Well, they don't. I mean, it's not like you can say, give me the gluten-free version. It's just that on the Thanksgiving lunch, um, I happen to know because we've been going for as long as Cole's been in the school, which he's in fifth grade now. Um that the we just don't get gravy and we don't get the pumpkin pie and everything else is like it's just plain steamed green beans it's mashed potatoes out of a box but it's like potato flour it doesn't have gluten in it and then um what else oh it's just turkey breast it's really dry turkey breast without <laughs> the gravy um but they're super stoked it's like you know the one day a year that they buy lunch and they love doing it so yeah cool. anyway um 
So before we kind of get into some of the details on the questions on this topic, I'm assuming you have some science you want to address. Hey, so I, I, you know, I always have science. Sure. Always. Next segment is Science with Sarah, where I take a moment to explain the details and the whys. So this week, I actually wanted to talk about something that is related to um, the holiday season, but maybe not so directly related to how we talk about um, food, food choices to other people about with our kids. Um, but it's something else that I thought was really relevant. And I uh, posted an article on my website this week that I'm sure Monica can put a link in the show notes that sort of goes into more detail but it was one of those topics that resonated so well with everybody that I thought it was worthwhile sort of rehashing here. And that is nutrient deficiencies that are caused by high sugar intake. So when we talk about the health detriments of sugar, you know, the, the normal framework that we discuss, you know, sugar being bad is with blood glucose and insulin spikes and the fact that those are inflammatory, so they can lead to increased risk of chronic diseases like diabetes and cancer and heart disease and obesity. But there's this other whole flip side to high sugar diets that is even relevant when you're talking about natural sugars. And that is the fact that high sugar intake depletes our body of nutrients. And that's different from if we're eating this sugary food, we're not eating you know, kale and liver. It's different than displacement that we actually understand the molecular and cellular mechanisms behind what's going on. And it really is draining our bodies of essential nutrients. And there's five in particular um, that are really well understood in the scientific literature. And this is kind of an important thing to have on our radar because most people, and I'm included, I will be definitely allowing myself more sweet stuff over the holidays. That's a normal thing. But I will be at the back of my head thinking about how can I increase nutrient density to make up for this? What else can I make sure I'm focusing on so that I'm not ending these holidays nutrient deficient? Because nutrient deficiency is itself inflammatory and causes health problems. And in fact, you know, the research, the, the body of literature that's starting to connect nutrient deficiencies with chronic illness is, is getting much more thorough. And we're basically starting to see that just about every chronic illness has at least a few specific nutrient deficiencies that it can be directly linked to. Um, so we know that nutrient deficiency is a, is a big problem. So when you eat a lot of sugar, a surprising nutrient for most people to find out that it can deplete your body of is vitamin D. And the way that this works is uh, high sugar interferes with the enzyme that is responsible for synthesizing vitamin D while also increasing the amount of um, an enzyme being produced that degrades vitamin D. So it, does, it attacks your vitamin D levels from both sides. So you're producing less and you're degrading more. Um, and this is one of those statistics where you kind of go like, wait a minute. Okay, so this is fructose in particular that interferes with vitamin D, you know, no wonder 75% of people in Western countries are deficient in vitamin D. You know, that kind of goes directly along with um, the increase in high fructose corn syrup and sweetened beverages and uh, sugar being added to so many processed and manufactured foods. Um, what's also really interesting is that um, when you're deficient in vitamin D, 
fructose becomes more inflammatory. So people are probably familiar with um, the video Sugar, the, the, the Bitter Truth that's out on the interwebs that really, um, and we can put a link in the show notes, that really you know, talks about exactly how fructose is inflammatory. Well, it turns out that if you're vitamin D sufficient, fructose isn't particularly inflammatory. We have if vitamin D helps us um, process fructose much better. Um, but if you're vitamin D deficient, fructose is far more inflammatory. So you end up being, if you're chronically eating too much fructose, you make yourself vitamin D deficient, and then fructose is even more inflammatory. So you get this like vicious cycle thing happening. Then the second nutrient that we become deficient in is calcium. And part of that is directly actually related to vitamin D. So when we become deficient in vitamin D, um, we cannot actively um, uh, regulate the transport of calcium from the small intestine uh, to the bones. So we end up being deficient in that way. But in addition, glucose, not fructose, but the other component of, of sugar, um, actually increases excretion of calcium by the kidneys. So we become less able to absorb it and we just, you know, throw it away basically is what the kidneys are doing. Um, and there's actually a variety of like really detailed molecular mechanisms behind that. Um, another nutrient that we become deficient in if we eat a lot of sugar is magnesium. Um, and this is an interesting one because magnesium is an, um, a mineral that we need for pretty much every organ, every function of the cells. Um, we burn through it really, really quickly when we're under stress. It's something that we need in order to produce cortisol and the other things that the adrenal glands produce like adrenaline and, um, epinephrine and all those things. And so, um, so we, we tend to burn through magnesium a lot in our contemporary society, and our foods tend to be more depleted in magnesium than they used to be. So, um, you know, the soil is depleted in magnesium, therefore vegetables grown in that soil is depleted in magnesium. So it's already kind of a tough mineral to get sufficient quantities of from the diet, which is why magnesium supplementation is so common within the paleo community. But when you have... Um, when you have chronic high intake of sugar, and this is really especially related to elevated blood sugar levels and spikes in insulin, um, that also increases the excretion of magnesium by the kidneys. And what's really fascinating is you get this other vicious cycle happening. So as you get magnesium depleted, magnesium is actually important for stabilizing blood sugar. So as we become depleted in magnesium, we end up making ourselves have higher blood sugar levels and insulin resistance. So we get this other vicious cycle. We also get a vicious cycle with chromium. So with um, chromium, uh, also another imp important trace mineral, um, with chromium, we again excrete excess chromium when we consume a lot of sugars, uh, fructose and glucose. It's excreted in the urine, right? If the kidneys are dumping stuff out, that's where it goes. And chromium also is incredibly important for blood sugar regulation. So it's actually something that we see both magnesium and chromium deficiency in diabetics, for example. So uh, chromium deficiency, which you can get from high sugar intake, then causes poor glucose tolerance and high blood sugar levels. And so you get this other vicious cycle. Uh, so that's not good. And nutrient number five that um, 
we get deficient in very easily when we're eating too much sugar is vitamin C. Um, this actually comes from the fact that vitamin C and glucose have incredibly similar structures, and they're actually transported within the cell by the same uh, receptors. So um, when the blood sugars are high, when there's a lot of glucose around, um, glucose binds slightly more strongly than vitamin C. So vitamin C is basically outcompeted by glucose to get inside the cell. Um, so you can be consuming tons of glucose and you're not absorbing it. You're not getting it into your cells where it actually needs to needs to be. Um, and what's really interesting when we talk about sugar, one of the reasons why whole food sources of sugar like fruit are always sort of put in a separate category is because they're foods that tend to have uh, all of these, well, not vitamin D, but all of these other minerals built in, right? They tend, oranges are high in vitamin C at the same time as they're high in sugar. And it ends up sort of um, making up for the potential downside of the sugar in that fruit, right? Here's some nutrients to make up for what the sugar is going to do. Um, and so the, the take-home message, of course, is not that we need to give up every single sweet thing every single day forever, but that sugar in moderation um, and, you know, carbohydrates are still good. Added sugars should be a very, very small percentage of our diets. They should be occasional. And even when they are consumed, they should be consumed in moderate amounts. And it's really helpful to focus on nutrient-dense sources of sugar. So fruit, right, whole food sources, things like blackstrap molasses. Um, I also did a article on my website um, a couple weeks ago on the nutrient value of blackstrap molasses um, and basically showing that per calorie it is so nutrient dense that it, it really stands apart from all of the sugars. It can't be put in the same category anymore. So really thinking about nutrient dense sugars and uh, quantity is really what it comes down to, you know, making sure that they, these really are treats and they don't become daily indulgences or two or three times daily indulgences, right? When, when we, the problem really becomes when we take the paleo framework and we mix it with Western style, you know, standard American diet style eating patterns. So we are eating the same foods, but we're eating the grain-free version of it. Um, and that's, that's where we start to see things like this, um, mechanisms like nutrient depletion from, from excess sugar still applying within the paleo template. I quit sugar like nine days ago. You were telling me about your, your coffee tea. I mean, your chocolate tea. Yeah. Last week. Yeah. That's a thing. I had, um, I did have one thing in that whole like period. It was a special anniversary dinner and it was a, a specific choice. And I was like, Hey, look at me moderating and being smart. <laughs> um, I, I think also, I don't know if it's just, you know, if it's individual preference or, you know, there's this idea of like super tasters or people who have just been metabolically deranged um, in the past whose bodies are more quick to kind of jump to that state. But I would say also, you know, it's this, it's this uh, circular problem that you and I have talked about before, right? Where then once you have the sugar, um, your body is always inclined to do things to 
kind of sabotage and it's like a snowball um, effect that I know a lot of people fall into kind of around that Halloween Thanksgiving period and then you're like, you know, holiday party after holiday party and then it's Christmas and, and then it's New Year's, New Year's resolutions and it's like that three month period doesn't have to be for what often ends up being people not happy with themselves, not happy with the choices they're making. It's not that we're passing judgment. It's just that I know all too well how quickly that snowballs. And so for me, I am literally surrounded by that stuff all the time. And people, I I have people who are pushers in my life, people who are like, you know, try this, do this, eat that. Um, We got a lot of things sent to us, which we're really appreciative of, but I don't need to eat all that stuff all the time. And so it's good for me to kind of have a mental reset sometimes. And I don't do very well with strict challenges. I I blogged about this, but this idea of, you know, setting, setting some standards for yourself and sticking to them, I think are really important this time of year so that you don't get in that, um, uh, I don't know, like the snowball of, because then once you have too much sugar, not only do you have all these nutrient deficiencies, but then the nutrient deficiencies for me actually cause me to crave, cause cause the wrong kinds of cravings. So then you're eating even more of the stuff that's exactly the wrong thing for you. And then because you're eating sugar, you're not sleeping. And then because you're not sleeping, your body has more cravings. And it's really difficult, not just from, you know, a lot of us think like, oh, if I just had more willpower, but honestly, for, for me, it is a chemical thing. Like I, I can feel it in myself and there are foods that help me feel better and there are foods and there are lifestyle factors that help me feel better too. Right. So, you know, telling myself I'm not eating that right now, getting enough sleep, getting, you know, a a physical exertion of some kind. Right now I'm walking, you could work out, you could do yoga, you could swim, whatever it is, right? These kinds of things are all really helpful in terms of setting those hormones for you so that it doesn't become, you know, such a problem. And then, then it can be just, uh, oh, it's Thanksgiving meal. I'm going to have, you know, pumpkin pie rather than I hosted and now I've got three pies left over and I'm going to eat them for a week and a half, which like, I'm not saying that I that, three that pies. May may, that may or may not have happened in right. my house. But I'm saying like that happens in almost everyone's house and you know, n- nobody wants to talk about it, but like we threw pies away and we are terrible people. We probably should have frozen them or given them to someone else. But it was just one of those things where we looked at each other and we were like, if we don't throw this out right now, we are going to eat it. And we don't want to eat it. Now, if you want to eat it and you, you know, like that's your business. I'm not telling people what to do, but I just know for me personally that that evil cycle, like you've just described one component of a a huge um, circle of problems that can just go on and on and on. Circle of bad. Circle of bad. And it's difficult to get out of. And it's, I think it's okay. What I want to tell people is like, it's okay if you're in that circle right now and you're having a hard time getting out like there is a reason but that's why we're here and that's why we have you know resources and and hopefully can encourage and inspire you to not do those things um if you don't want to i really think that one of the most important things that i have learned how to do in my weight loss journey in terms of maintaining my weight loss is not is pulling myself out of those circle of bads faster. 
So I still fall into them. I still fall into that sugar craving cycle. And especially like I know how critical getting enough sleep is and stress management is and activity is for, um, for how that cycle goes. Right. So if I'm not getting enough sleep and I'm stressed and I'm sedentary, then, um, the, you know, the cravings are stronger. I'm less inhibited. So I'm giving in more. So I know to pull myself out. I have to go to bed early. I have to get in a good workout. I have to, you know, take some time to do something for me that's going to be, you know, meditative or stress relieving in some way. And that helps sort of pull me out of those vicious cycles faster. And so it's one of the things that I think has been really key for me in my health journey is not necessarily, I mean, I think I certainly fall down that path less frequently, but it still happens. I think the bigger difference is, is sort of recognizing it and being able to, you know, pick myself up and dust myself off and get back on track more efficiently has been, that's the big difference between, you know, gaining, you know, a pound or two pounds on, you know, a few bad choices in a row and then being able to lose that easily versus gaining 20 pounds, right? For me, that was the diet cycle that I used to be on. And now it's, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm perfect all the time or that I always have control or that, um, that everything I do is completely intentional. You know, sometimes I'm eating something before I make the choice to eat it. Um, but the big thing is sort of recognizing where lifestyle fits into that equation and, um, basically having, having that mm, strength isn't the right word, um, practice, (laughs) Mispractice might be better. The recognition, right? Understanding my body so that I can pull myself out more efficiently by managing stress and getting in a workout and going to bed early. Yeah, I think of self awareness and self respect. You know, it's being able to tell myself, like, that's not what I really want. I might think that that's what I want. I might be having an emotional reaction or I might know that it tastes good, but ultimately, like, that's not what I really want. And then coming up with mechanisms to do something else, you know, like snuggle or get out of the house. Or for me, it's, you know, I drink tea or I do something to satiate that part of my brain that's desirous of something that it's not really desirous of. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about that before and I know we're going to we're going to jump into some. Um, discussions on how to how to avoid this further, especially in terms of of family. But I just wanted to I wanted to give people the encouragement of like this. These nutrient deficiencies are more common than most people would like to choose to admit. I mean, vitamin D deficiency and magnesium deficiency are almost always like isn't vitamin D deficiency like 80% of the country or something ridiculous like yeah 75% yeah and so the this is not coincidence you know this is this is because of the culture that we have and un- unfortunately it's very difficult to break that habit if you've had it and also to establish new habits for yourself and five years later, you know, for both Sarah and I, we've openly admitted that these things creep up on us and we do, we have to come up with, you know, breaking ourselves 
of that, you know, for me, especially emotional connection with those types of foods. Um, and then finding, finding positive ways to enjoy healthier foods or, you know, lifestyle things that avoid it. But that, you know, if this is something that you're struggling with, I don't want people to feel like, oh, I'm doomed and there's no hope for me because that's not the case. Here, here. Questions and answers, where we answer questions submitted by you through the contact form on our websites, paleomom.com and paleoparents.com. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. So getting back to our kid focus, Mandy says, I was wondering if you have any suggestions for the children's snack at church. We attend a fairly large church, and whether we are at our church or visiting my church back home, it seems like the go-to snack for Sunday school is goldfish or animal crackers. You can send a snack for your child to eat, but instead of doing that, I was wondering if you might have a suggestion that I could recommend that could replace the goldfish and animal cracker regimen for all the kids. I'm sure it comes down to cost and simplicity, but I can't think of something simple and paleo and um, paleo-friendly and cost-effective for all the kids. Any suggestions would be much appreciated. Thanks for all you do. I have learned so much from listening to both of you ladies. My suggestion is fresh fruit. Um, I was going to say fresh fruit. My kids love clementines and bananas. Those are really like any kind of They're good together too. And they're self-contained, you know, and they're good for kids' dexterity. Um, The other alternative that I would mention is... Um, the kinds of activities that my kids do, people take turns bringing snack. That way it doesn't need to be like on the school to provide the snack 100% of the time, um, which, you know, then is not so focused on cost. Um, And in the classrooms that we have, we have like a list of choices that parents can choose from. And, um, Oftentimes it's like nut-free, gluten-free, dairy-free foods so that all kids with all different kinds of food intolerances or allergies can can eat off of those and parents can bring them in. Um, we have a long list of snack ideas in our ebook Paleo to Go, um, which focuses a lot on packing kids' lunches, but I won't take all of the ideas because I evidently stole your fruit idea. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, so usually... Um, something like nuts would be expensive, a choking hazard, and a lot of young kids, you know, won't, won't be, um, exposed to them yet. So you don't know what's right. It's an allergen. So for me, I'm like, but the, my first thought actually was apple slices, right? It's typically something that most kids like, and then bananas and even, right. You don't even have to do a whole banana per kid. It could be half a banana. Um, my kids always like bananas cut up into circles. We call them banana circles, Um, and I think that, you know, something like fruit, it's very nutrient dense. Kids generally love it. Um, there's also some more, uh, sort of paleo friendly, you know, crunchy chip like, um, products out there. So for example, something like sweet potato chips or cassava chips, um, those are typically more expensive though. I don't think that hits the cost effective, um, button the way fresh fruit does. Um, even something like grapes, you know, cut in half if the kids are really little. Um, but something like that, you know, the, the prep work can be done in advance and then you just put them into little, you know, paper plates or something for the kids. Um, so I think, I think fresh fruit is sort of 
I think that's the main winner, really. Okay. <laughs> All right, next question. Dawn says, I just sent my child to preschool and got her doctor to agree to the following restrictions. No red food dye, no dairy, no corn, and no gluten. Her school is letting her use rice milk instead of soy milk, but won't allow for other options. I'd prefer an almond milk option, but the school requires that milk of some form be offered. The school looks for the major issues like bread and chips, but doesn't focus on the smaller ones like French fries, which have gluten. What? She doesn't have... So, yeah, some French fries do. It depends on how they're made. I, I, okay. If, it's, it's so a, cheap and easy to just do them as potatoes. Okay. Okay. But, like, when you, when you, like, buy the bags of potato chips, depending on what you buy, they're sometimes dusted in wheat starch or sometimes, like, the potatoes are mashed and then mixed with gluten yeah. and then formed into pota- French fry I'm like I'm, shapes. I, okay. I know. I'm just, I'm just having a moment where I'm, like, it's so much more effort to do that. <laughs> Um, but see, a machine does that. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, Don. I didn't mean to interrupt your question. Don's daughter doesn't have any diagnosed allergies or diseases, so I can't claim that she has celiac despite my beliefs, and I'm unable to force the school or doctor to do more. I'm trying out a different doctor to see if the new doctor will agree with me, and the school won't allow you to opt out of the program unless the food restrictions are intense. Okay, I'm just having a shaking my head moment. On top of that, she is feeling the desire to eat like her peers, understandable, and we live with her grandparents who model a different way of eating, standard American diet, which means that she is always somewhere in the middle of the diet scale at home. I'm not sure if you've already covered this topic, but I was wondering what you would recommend to do when you send your child to a school who is part of the USDA food program and you can't find a doctor to back the paleo diet. Any advice? So we did answered that particular question once before. Um, and I'll just recap, um, from a high level, I had this experience when Cole went to a preschool and it was subsidized by a USDA food program that required a certain number of grains and dairy. Um, Cole was lactose intolerant. We were not paleo at the time, but I knew that he was lactose intolerant because he reacted from my breast milk and, Um, He was over the age of six months, so she was, like, required to give him milk or some, I don't know, something ridiculous. Um, And so I just paid an extra $13 a week to opt out of the program, which is what she was being subsidized. So then she didn't show that child as being part of the program, and it didn't jeopardize her approval of the program because... Um, that child wasn't in it that wasn't getting the food. Um, the other alternative is the approach that she's taking, which is to talk to a doctor. I'm not understanding because in the beginning she says that her doctor doctor agreed, agreed to the restrictions, but they're not considered intense enough to opt out of the program, which is. But so then she says she's. Can I use an- the M word? Can I use the M word? Because that's moronic. Yeah. That's like if the doctor the doctor agrees that these are intolerances or they don't. Or the doctor doesn't like if there are intolerances, then the kid shouldn't be given that food at school. Like period. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm not finding the connection between if a doctor agreed that she's restricted to those foods, then there's like, I just, I can't kind of get beyond where there would be continued conversation on the matter. Um, the, uh, you know, the alternative here is, uh, again, to 
you know, if you can switch, switch schools or find a different doctor that will be more firm with the school. Um, but opting out of the program and packing your own lunch is kind of always what we've done when my kids were, um, in preschool, it was a, a co-op preschool where the kids brought a snack, like the parent who was co-oping was responsible for bringing snack every day. And sometimes there were some things in the snack that my kids could have, but they always had food that they brought in the event that everything was, you know, dairy or gluten or whatever. Um, and I, it's, it's really difficult. And I, I feel her pain and her struggle. I think the you know, the bigger thing for me here is, is how does her daughter feel about all of this? Because the confusion of, you know, what grandparents eat and grandparents are at the house and then what the doctor and the school and her mom are all telling her are all very different. I don't know how old this daughter is, but I know for, for anyone basically under the age of maybe like eight to 10, that would be really difficult to navigate as a child and not just be really confused and overwhelmed. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the best tools that, you know, I have as a parent is empowering my child to make their own choices and to, you know, advocate for themselves and that kind of stuff. But at, at a certain point, if they're confused about, you know, what those choices are, or they're too young to advocate for themselves, it has to do a lot with the parent then working with all the people that are in that child's life as caregivers to focus on how how your child will succeed the most. I think, you know, framing it in terms of, you know, the intensity of a food allergy is different from how I phrase it with, you know, my, my children's caregivers, which is that, you know, if, if you'd like to see my children at their best, if you'd like to ensure that they listen and are attentive and learn, we have found that, you know, them not partaking in the treats and and sugary snacks that are often offered in the classroom are the, the best ways for them to do that. And so instead, we, you know, have this alternative that they can have if it's someone's birthday or something, but if it's, you know, Skittles in math class, they just don't need to partake in that. And I, I think that kind of conversation would be really important when talking to, you know, the grandparents and the the care providers at the school is, you know, maybe just reframe the conversation to say what exactly it is that, you know, is you're seeing in your daughter. And if she's struggling and if, you know, she has stomach aches or if she has headaches or if it's difficult for her to learn or, you know, she doesn't sleep well because she has any of these foods, framing that for them and making sure that they understand that it affects her well-being and that, you know, what can I do to work with you to make this right? Can I bring in gluten-free pretzel sticks that look the same as what you're serving to everybody else, but that, you know, won't make my daughter sick as much and work with them on transition so that it, you know, over time, maybe it becomes easier and then it's, you know, not such an argument, but what do you say, Sarah? So I'm wondering what is happening is that the doctor has agreed to these restrictions and the school goes, okay, fine, we won't give her any of those, but they're not being particularly careful, right? So they're 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 not giving her major sources of gluten, but not worried about trace gluten. Um, and that what I mean, what ideally she would like is a bigger list of restrictions in a school that, you know, actually is careful about gluten for a gluten sensitive child. So 
um, you know, one of the things that, so how food intolerances are typically diagnosed or food allergies are typically diagnosed in young children, um, they don't typically have to be confirmed by blood work or by, you know, scratch testing. It's really parent notices reaction when kid eats food, parent stops giving said food to kid, kid stops having reaction, food gets reintroduced, reaction happens again. So it's it's really that process. And the types of reactions that kids can have can vary dramatically. And so that's how my kids have diagnosed food sensitivities. I said, look, you know, my um, now nearly nine-year-old, when we went gluten-free, she had been on Miralax for two years and she was able to stop Miralax and she started sleeping through the night for the first time in her life. She says now that she remembers having tummy aches all the time and she didn't realize that that wasn't normal. Um, and so that, that was enough to confirm diagnosis. If she accidentally gets exposed to gluten, she has a really bad stomach ache now. Um, my youngest had really severe acid reflux that was causing obstructive sleep apnea from both gluten and from casein. That took a long time to figure out exactly what was going on and a long time to figure out exactly what her triggers were. Um, but when we figured it out, okay, great. That was, you know, it was me reporting that this, you know, sleep breathing problem that had been we had been through several specialists and sleep studies at the children's hospital to try to figure out what was going on had magically disappeared. We went both gluten-free and casein-free and every time she got exposed, even to extremely trace amounts of gluten or casein, it would come back. And so that's sufficient for a diagnosis. Um, you know, we actually have blood work on my youngest that's negative and it doesn't matter that the blood works negative because there's more ways that you can react to food that the, those tests can't test for. So, um, so the doctor signs a gluten-free, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free sign. And I talk to my kids' teachers and I say, you know, like it says gluten-free is what the doctor has said. I mean, I suppose I could say she turns into the Hulk with food dyes and food dyes could be on that list, but food dyes are something I just talk to the teacher and say, please don't give her, you know, please don't give her Skittles. And my daughter's old enough that she can you know, she can make choices herself and she can say, no, thank you. And she has made a strong enough connection with how she feels and food dies to always opt now not to have them. She prefers to be in control of her emotions and the words that come out of her mouth. Um, so I think there's, there's two sides to this coin. So one is, you know, getting that letter from a doctor that says this kid is intolerant to these things that's done based on you reporting kid has symptoms when kid eats these foods. Um, the second is enforcement. So if doctor says kid is gluten intolerant, that means that the school should be providing zero, like zero gluten in that kid's food. Um, so that's a, you know, discussing with the school and saying like, no, it has, has to say gluten free. If it says any of these ingredients, you know, providing there's, um, lists in, uh, the Paleo Approach and the Paleo Approach cookbook of all the hidden sources of gluten. There's lists on celiac.com, probably like 7,000 other websites of all the different ingredients that actually mean gluten. And you can give that list to the school or you can say, I need to check the labels. I need, you know, let me come in Monday mornings and check the labels of everything that's going to be provided for the week. And I'll tell you what's yes or what's no. Um, so I think that, you know, a little bit of it is, um, some assertiveness and, you know, respectfully and kindly 
but you know, offering to work with the school to make sure that um, that your your daughter's diet actually meets the restrictions of the doctor, at least in the meantime, until you can find a doctor who um, will write a letter that is more in line with with your priorities. And I hope that a discussion happens with um, the parents that are you know, the grandparents that are living at home too, with, um, these are the priorities, these are the yes foods, these are the no foods. This is the line that doesn't get crossed. I mean, that's just a conversation that needs to happen again. That conversation can be respectful. It doesn't have to be confrontational. I mean, I think Stacy, you would make it confrontational, right? No, just joking. Uh, you'd be like, you'd be like mama bear. You'd be mama bear. Yeah. I mean, people don't mess with me. Let's just, I'll just, <laughs> I'm 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 more the like super friendly offer to help and let me explain and um like ridiculously patient person typically. Um it it's but, really situation driven and personality driven, yeah. but I if if I had taken something into the school that said no gluten and they agreed and then they were just like too lazy to read the label that the french fries had gluten in them and gave them to her anyway and shrugged their shoulders like it was no big deal. It it would I would no longer be nice and polite. I it would be throwdown time. So I have a feeling Don has all the ideas now, and, and probably- Don, if you need me to call the school, <laughs> you know what's up. Yeah. Um. So let's do uh, one more question. This one's from Laura. Our family recently discovered the paleo lifestyle, and we are transitioning our diet to paleo. All the meals I cook are paleo, except we still included small amounts of dairy in the way of cheese and cream for coffee in the mornings. My son is still breastfed at night, um, during the night and in the morning and at lunchtime. My son is in daycare full time. And while I pack his lunch each day, there are guidelines that parents are required to follow. The daycare is supposed to ensure each child receives the balanced diet and snacks are provided at the daycare. Do you have any suggestions on how to talk to our daycare provider about our wishes for him to not have any wheat or dairy at daycare? So I guess I would need to know what the balanced diet includes because if it includes something like a grain or dairy, um, it's easy to talk to them in terms of, well, my child is intolerant to dairy and what nutrient is it that you're looking for? And I'll make sure to include a food that has that nutrient. So if they're concerned about vitamin D, then you can look up some vitamin D rich foods, um, or you can cook whatever in lard, or you can, you know, tell them that you're taking care of it. Um, you can also just get a note from his doctor that says, um, because he's breastfed, he's, you know, receiving, you know, adequate nutrients and they don't need to worry about his, um, balanced lunch and evaluate it. I mean, this seems to me like it's more in the early stages of kindness, as you would say, Sarah, the, the helpful education part of like, I understand that you're being told that my child needs to have a balanced diet and these are the foods on the list. What are the nutrients in these foods that you want me to make sure that my child has? And I will. Um, or you could offer, you know, an approach to them and say, I'll make sure that my child has, you know, a starch, a vegetable, a fat, and a protein, um, because that will ensure that they, you know, have um, sufficient 
nourishment throughout the day. Uh, That's how we frame packing lunches for our boys. And it allows them to put, you know, a fruit for a starch or, you know, whatever in terms of um, a a more sweet or carb-rich food. And then, you know, a fat, a vegetable could be... um, black olives and I don't know exactly the age of the child, but those are pretty mushy. I never really worried about my kids choking on them. Um, it could be guacamole. It could be a bunch of different things, um, that has both, you know, fat and vegetable. And then a protein is pretty simple. Hopefully you're including that as it is. I mean, this kind of question I, I always turn to like, well, what would you do if the person was a vegan? What would you, you know, like how, what would your expectations be? And I'm assuming that they're, they've got to bend the rules because they can't require someone to eat meat because they could be not eating meat for religious reasons. Right. So there, there have to be alternatives in it. It always just starts with kind of communication and it. I think it's just important to frame it around, okay, if balanced diet is important, what are the nutrients that you're looking for my child to be consuming? And most likely they're not going to know how to answer that because there aren't nutrients in goldfish, you know? (laughs) So also, you know, this is sort of in contrast to Dawn's question. You know, this is also that early, you know, that early discussion, right? And so, you know, it's worth maybe having a discussion that says, you know, I suspect um, that my son is wheat and dairy intolerant and I want to put him on an elimination diet. Um, so it's really important that he doesn't have wheat or dairy at school. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I suspect he's and maybe not even use the word intolerant. I suspect he might have an allergy to wheat and dairy. Um, you know, I want to put him on an elimination diet. So, you know, I need to make sure that he doesn't get any foods at school that include these ingredients um, and start the conversation there, right? Start the conversation with, well, no, like I, we're, we're still trying to figure this out. Um, and, um, and then, you know, what would be good substitutes? So if they require a, you know, serving of grain is something that looks like a grain that's made with paleo flowers going to meet that criteria, Is something like um, a mashed sweet potato going to meet that criteria? I mean, even though sweet potato is definitely a vegetable, um, sometimes some, you know, like like potatoes can sometimes sneak into the grain category just based on being a starch, right? So sweet potato can kind of sometimes sneak that way too. Um, Make it a white sweet potato and pretend it's a regular potato or eat regular potatoes since those are mostly paleo now. Um, So... So having that conversation of like what what will qualify for whichever those, you know, each item is supposed to be um, and then figuring out, you know, what you can do within the paleo framework or what you can do within that transitioning to paleo. So um, whether it's including, you know, a little bit of rice or um, including, you know, grass fed dairy or or wherever. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of gray in paleo. And so most of the time, you know, Stacey and I would recommend doing a sort of strict paleo diet for three to four weeks and you sort of cleansing your system that way and then try reintroducing these gray foods to see if you have a reaction. And that's really the best way to figure out if, if dairy is a food that's working for you. Um, but you can always do it the other way around where you sort of include those foods at first, see how you feel and then start cutting them out and see if that improves things even more. So, um, so I think there's a lot of, 
a lot of give and take that could happen here. Um, and I think it starts with, it starts with that, you know, respectful conversation of, I'd like to work with you on this. Um, and hopefully, hopefully that helps. Look at us answering questions, having a show. No, like a real show. No, like strep throats around. <laughs> uh, no stomach bugs. I'm knocking on wood because one of mine had stomach bug over the weekend. <laughs> We're in the holding pattern of I'm hoping no one else gets it. But uh, yeah, it's awesome. Glad I can't get that from where I am. Um, not 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 from me. uh i should someday i'd like to actually look up like exactly how many miles apart we are so i can start saying like not from you know 876 miles away (laughs) i don't know if it's 876 good idea wouldn't it be fun to have it like a number like that maybe down to a decimal point for you you, that seems two miles that seems like something you would find fun i really like numbers i just they make me happy in my heart is all i'm saying I'm a counter. I'm a person who just naturally counts things. Well, everyone, go count your things, and Sarah will be happy for you. We'll be back next week where Sarah might geek out and tell you exactly how many miles apart we are. Could happen. Most likely she'll forget within five minutes of the show ending, and she'll have forgotten to look it up before then. Okay, yes, that actually is the most likely scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite Paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Hello. My children are not yet in bed. <laughs> I mean, they've been put to bed. But it's mine. Mine have probably been even asleep for 45 minutes. Yeah, no. Mine, it's not sticking. It's not a thing. Although I did just get <laughs> wonderful snuggles. Um, now I have to snuggles hear. Snuggles are always great. Yeah. And then it's the, oh, and this one more thing. And I forgot to do this. And daddy, I need water. And I need to go potty. And I forgot to brush my teeth. And I don't like it when it's dark. And just go to bed. <laughs> it's always in the night that I need to do something that you're not doing the thing that you need to do child. So yes, they do tend to do that. So I, my parenting style is generally fairly relaxed. It's very, um, I, my mom would call it survival of the fittest parenting, although it's not really that extreme, but it's, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you can figure it out. Right. Like that's sort of my parenting style. And then it comes bedtime and I'm, I've suddenly become like <laughs> military parent, <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, Brush your teeth, wash your face, get in your pajamas, go to the bathroom, get in your bed, read a story. Here's your water. My kids eat bananas in bed. So here's your banana. Like, all right, lights out. And it's very like all of a sudden, I think I'm actually like that. I'm a real stickler for certain aspects of my kids' lives to be like really routine. So meal times are are within a fairly narrow range for my kids, like say within like a 30-minute range. I mean, maybe it slides out to within – no, no, it's still even on the weekends. It's still like within about a 30-minute range. And then um, supper's maybe more like an hour range. And then bedtime is within like 15 minutes every single night. And we never do anything that would like – 
Like we go, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go watch the like lighting of the Christmas tree lights? It's too late. Wouldn't it be nice to go, you know, watch those fireworks together? It's too late. And part of that is because my kids have never in the history of their lives ever slept in when they have stayed up late for a reason. And um, and then then they're like horrible human beings for like weeks until they catch up on their sleep. And because I like to enjoy being with my kids, I make sure they go to bed every night. It's a thing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I continue that lackadaisical parenting philosophy, which, by the way, is how we became. Um, crunchy granola parents to begin with just because it was easier <laughs> to breastfeed <laughs> than to get up in the middle of the night. It is totally easier to just strap your baby in a carrier and walk around with them and yep. figure out how to do the dishes with this thing in front of you than it is to listen to a baby crying. Yeah. So I have con- <laughs> I have continued this for years, including now, whereby um, it's like, all right, Here's when your bedtime is. Make sure you get yourself situated by the time you go to bed. And um, for the most part, that works out, but not when, you know, I'm trying to podcast. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's where, that's where my, that's where my, my lackadaisical, I think was the word you used. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where my, my more relaxed parenting style re- reaches its limits and in, in comes, in comes the mom who's waving a wooden spoon. That's that's what I associate it with, waving a wooden spoon while while nagging and saying time to do this, waving a wooden spoon. I just my I don't know. Did they? I mean, is that like night? I was gonna say that's like nineteen fifties parenting, but I have no idea if that's nineteen fifties parenting. I just you you weren't around then. I seriously <laughs> sorry. Just you ask for these things. <laughs> okay, so. I think I'm mixing, I'm mixing like these metaphors in my head. Cause I think I'm mixing the like cartoon woman holding a wooden spoon. Who's cooking from the 1950s with maybe my mom yelling at us with a wooden spoon as we were kids. I think I might be melding those two things in my head inappropriately. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.